Hello, I am Matthew Hurst, the worship minister of First Baptist Church, Watauga, and we want to simply say thank you for listening to these messages. We'd like to invite you on Sunday morning at 1045 to join us in worship of God and to hear from His Word. Our mission here at FBC Watauga is to exalt the Savior equip the saints, and to evangelize the lost one person at a time. So I pray as you listen to these messages that you would be encouraged and equipped as you listen to the word of the Lord today. This week I saw more comments. Of course, social media is more prolific than it has been, but uh, not just on social media, uh, emails, uh, people's comments that are absolutely done with 2020. I I don't know what's so bad about that number. I always thought 2020 was a good number. And when my eyesight began began to dissipate, I felt like it would be good to have 2020 vision again, right? That's supposed to be a, a good number. And yet people are fed up with 2020. And, and somehow we get this idea that once that clock turns, once that, that ball drops and, and, and the, we shout Happy New Year, that it erases all and we move forward. Well, the, that's just simply not true. You know, back in 1999, when the clock or the calendar was going to change to 2000, there was a lot of panic. What's going to happen with the computers? The elevators are going to quit working, and, and the whole world's going to kind of come to a stop. And, and what, what's going to happen? Well, at that time, I was the computer expert in May, Texas. I was the guy that was in charge of all of the computers for the school district. And so people would come to me and ask me questions. We had people in May that sold everything. They sold every electronic they had, went out and bought water and, and, and bottled water and, and stored up food for the, for the apocalypse. And they'd ask me, what's going to happen? Pastor and I said, nothing. The cows don't know that the calendar's changed. They're going to keep giving milk. The chickens don't know that it's gone from 99 to 2,000. They're going to keep laying eggs. And God, who was in control in 1999, is still going to be in control in 2,000. Nothing's going to change when that clock ticks or when that calendar changes. Well, certainly there's a hope for new beginnings. But the bottom line is, coronavirus doesn't know that the calendar has changed. In fact, uh, yesterday... You know, I remember not long ago when Fort Worth first had a thousand cases in one day and there was panic in the streets. Yesterday, Tarrant County recorded 3,361 new coronavirus cases. That's why we're not going back to growth groups right away. That's why we're going to be cautious in how we move forward. 99% of the hospital beds in Tarrant County or the ICU beds in Tarrant County are filled right now. There's less than five available yesterday. I don't want to be the pastor responsible for starting something that causes one of y'all to end up needing an ICU bed. So those are some of the reasons that we're being cautious and making some of the decisions that we are. On the other hand, realize that just because the calendar change doesn't take away our problems or our griefs, the The senior adult lady who lost a loved one this year is still going to grieve that loss. The young father who was diagnosed with cancer in 
December, the cancer did not immediately disappear when the calendar changed to 2021. Our issues and our struggles and our problems and our battles and our sin and all of the things that we battled with in 2020 are still going to be there in 2021. The change of the calendar is not going to fix that. But there is someone who can make a difference, who can transform our lives, who can fix it. And that's really what our story is about today. Today, we're going to be jumping back into our study of the Gospel of John. We studied the first seven chapters of the Gospel of John under our first heading. The second section of the Gospel of John, uh, as I see it breaks down, goes from chapter 8 through chapter 12. So the next 12 or 13 weeks, we're going to be looking at that section of the Gospel of John. And then after Easter, we're going to come back and we're going to pick up in John 13 and go through the end of the Gospel of John. So we're in that second section right now of the Gospel of John, beginning with chapter 8, verse 1. In fact, your Bible's actually going to put a bracket around this passage, and it's going to begin our study with John chapter 7, verse 53. Now, because there is a bracket around the story, I want to pause there for just a moment and address that issue with you. Uh, Your Bibles, whether you have a paper Bible or whether you even have it uh, like I have uh, my Logos version here in front of me on my iPad, there's a bracket before chapter, verse 53, and there's a, there's a bracket after cha- chapter 8, verse 11, and there's a footnote that says that the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7, 53 through John 8, 11. Now, that can be disconcerting to some of us who we look to Scripture as trustworthy, the inspired Word of God. And yet, I want to just address that for you. This is an area somewhat of of an expertise that the Lord had given me back when I was doing my, my New Testament studies. This passage in particular is one that is not found in the earliest handwritten Greek manuscripts of the Gospel of John. It's one of only two passages in all of Scripture, or in all of the New Testament, that there has this question about. And and yet, this passage is unique because I I would suggest that it is a, a text that's looking for a context. This passage is included in two other places in John chapter 7 in some manuscripts. It also is included at the end of the Gospel of John, and it also appears in Luke chapter 21 in some of the early Greek manuscripts. Not the earliest of Greek manuscripts, but in some Greek manuscripts when it first begins to appear. It's very evident that early church fathers, let me back up for just a moment and remind you that all of the stories of Jesus. All of the gospel stories were first transmitted orally before they were written down by the authors. Every one of them. The stories of Jesus' death when Jesus died on the cross and rose again in whether 30 or 33 AD, those stories weren't written by the gospel authors until 20, 30, and 35 years later. And so those stories were passed down orally before they were recorded. And so This is one of those stories that I believe without a doubt, because of the content of the text, I believe without a doubt that it is the inspired, trustworthy Word of God. There's no question for me that this passage is not only true, it is God's Word for us, and it is the inspired Word of God. Now, I agree with several scholars that John is probably not the one who wrote this story. It was probably Luke who wrote this story. And there's some internal evidence that gives me reason for that. And, and without getting real technical and getting into all of it, uh, there's, I'll give you two quick reasons. One, there's a word used in here when, when the, the, 
the, Jesus is referred to as teacher by the Pharisees, John never uses that word in his gospel anywhere else. You, Luke uses it prolifically to refer to Jesus. The other reason is this passage does appear in Luke 21 in, a, in, in some of the manuscripts. And in Luke 21, Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, which lines up with where this passage says Jesus was doing this teaching. So all of that said... I want you to step back from that and recognize that this is the the trustworthy, inspired Word of God, regardless of those brackets that your Bible may have around this text. So we're going to begin then with the text itself, because this is a story of not only redemption, but it's a story of new beginnings. The Scripture says, then each one went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued riding on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. It's an incredible story that many of you are familiar with. It's a story that gets taken out of context and gets abused for various reasons in our culture. And so I want us to to walk through the text, but I'm going to do it in a little bit of a unique way. Y'all have seen me in my sermon structure sermons this way in the past, but I want to look at it from the 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 focus of the main players, so to speak, in this story. To begin with, I want us to consider the religious leaders. You have the Pharisees and Sadducees who in, in this text represent, or the scribes and the Pharisees, I'm sorry, who in this text represent the religious leaders who were out to get Jesus. They were angry at Jesus. We already know that they'd been trying to stone him. They weren't happy with uh, some of his teaching, especially how he addressed the Sabbath and how he addressed some of the legal issues of, of their religious cult, so to speak, and, and they were upset with him. And so they were looking for ways to trap him. And I want you to notice a few things about these religious leaders. First of all, they did not care one whit about people. They did not care about the woman. They did not care about Jesus. They did not care one bit about the needs of people. And yet, that's exactly the heart that God has. God 
loves us. God has a heart for us. And yet these religious leaders who called themselves men of God did not care one bit about people. And I want you to notice something else here. They really didn't even care about their religion. Because if they cared about their religion, they would be concerned about keeping the the religious rules for everyone. Now, my understanding is with adultery, that if somebody is caught in the act of adultery, there is someone else present involved in that act. And so the question has to be, where's the man? If the woman's caught in adultery, she's caught in, a, in the act with someone. And yet the, the, the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership at this point, they didn't care about, about maintaining their holiness, their religious righteousness. If they did, they would have brought the man to trial as well. They didn't care about that. They didn't care about the woman. They didn't care about people. They didn't care about their, their religion. In fact, if they cared about the man, they would at least want to address his issue and help him deal with his sin so that he could get out of his sin, so that he could leave his, this adulterous situation. They didn't care about that. All they cared about was their power. Jesus was a threat to their way of life. Jesus was a threat to their power. They didn't care about the people that were under them. They didn't care about the people that were around them. They, John makes it clear here, they set this up. In fact, I would suggest that the, one, the reason the man wasn't brought before them, and he wasn't put on trial before them, was because he was probably part of the setup. He was probably one of them who was involved in it. How else would they have known so easily and been able to find this woman at that right time? They didn't care about their, their, the holiness of their community or their religion. They cared about their power. Sounds a whole lot like politicians in our world right now, doesn't it? They don't care about what they do to the rest of us. They care about maintaining power, maintaining authority. And yet, oftentimes, we'll do the exact same thing. We'll cover stuff up and get ourselves in deeper and deeper and deeper trouble because we're trying to maintain our position, maintain our place, maintain our power. Jesus was a threat to them, and they had decided they were going to use whatever means they could use to tear him down. And if it meant destroying the lives of people whom God cared about, they would destroy them because they didn't care. All they cared about was their position and their power. As we examine these religious leaders, I want us to to take a moment to ask ourselves some tough questions about our own hearts. See, the first thing that they did was they used their religion for some benefit. And I'm afraid far too often we don't guard our own religious hearts. I think that, that, that we as, as followers of Christ sometimes allow our religion, the rules and regulations, to take over. 
And we forget that what God is most concerned about is people. And we don't guard our heart against our own religiosity, against our own religion. Second, we need to pay attention to our motives. That's exactly what was getting these religious leaders in trouble. They were using their religion, they were using their religiosity, but they were doing it for a particular motive. Their desire, their motive was to destroy Jesus. John makes that very clear. They did this to set a trap for him so that they might have evidence to accuse him. Their motive was to hurt him. There's, there really is the right time and right place to deal with sin in the community. In fact, Scripture teaches us that there's a time and a place to deal with a brother who is caught in sin. There's a way to deal with a brother or sister who finds themselves in sin so that we can help them. But Scripture also reminds us to check our own motives. If our motive is truly to help, one of the first things that we're going to do is we're going to examine our own sin. We're going to examine our own hearts. Before I can be helpful in, in helping you deal with the sin in your own life, in your life, I've got to deal with the sin in my own life. Isn't that exactly what Jesus says? Jesus doesn't tell us absolutely that we're not allowed to judge. Jesus says, make sure that you examine your own heart, and before you go out and try to remove the speck from your brother's eye, deal with the log that's in your own eye. And so, one of the things that happens in our culture, this passage in particular has been misused and abused to say, well, see, Jesus forgave the woman caught in adultery. We shouldn't address sin. You know, we shouldn't, con we, we, we shouldn't uh, uh, deal with sin. Uh, no, that Jesus dealt with sin here. Jesus dealt with the sin, but the Pharisees had the wrong motive as they acted as though they were dealing with sin. So we need to be careful to examine our own hearts, examine our own sin. And here's what happens when we honestly look at our own hearts and recognize that we too are sinners, is it causes us to have compassion. When I have sinned, I, I desire mercy. When I've hurt my wife by saying something I shouldn't say and I apologize. I desire for her to forgive me and not hold it against me. But if I want that forgiveness and I want mercy, then I need to be willing to extend that mercy and that forgiveness as well. So we have to be willing to show compassion. These religious leaders here had no sense whatsoever of compassion. So consider the religious leaders, guard our own religious heart, pay attention to our own motives, examine our own sin, and be willing to show compassion. The next major player, and of course he's always the most important player in this story, is Jesus. What about Jesus? You know, one of the most intriguing things that I appreciate about this is Jesus didn't say a whole lot. He didn't preach a whole long sermon. Jesus could have, could have dealt with these guys. Uh, but what he does, the scripture says there in verse 6, after he knows that they've tried to set a trap for him, the, half, the middle part of verse 6, the scripture says, Jesus stooped down and he started riding on the ground with his finger. They kept pressing him. They kept bugging him. They kept asking him questions. He finally stands up and he says, all right, 
whichever one of you doesn't have any sin, you throw the first rock. That's all he says. Then he stoops back down and he starts riding in the dirt again. I've always wondered, and I know that I've asked this question before, what was he riding in the dirt? What was it that, that, that Jesus was, was, was intentionally riding? Because I'm sure there's other times that he, he fiddled around and, you know, kicked dirt or whatever. But John purposely points out in the context here, right before Jesus spoke and after Jesus spoke, that he's riding in the dirt. Well, I've heard it, heard it questioned before, and, and, and I've wondered, was he writing down the names of their sins? Of all of this group of, of religious leaders who are standing around, was, was he writing out their sins? Was he writing down the names of their mistresses? Maybe he was simply writing down the name of the man who had been caught in sin that they f- refused to bring. He was one of their friends, one of their leaders. I tend to lean toward the, the, the idea that he was somehow writing down their sins that they identified with. Because when he stands up and he asks that question and he calls them out on their sin, one by one, they begin to leave. Interesting, John points out, they started with the oldest. Probably because the oldest, further down the road, understood that he had more sin. But John, Jesus called them out for their sin. I, I want you to see that as we walk through this and we look at what Jesus did. Because we, our, our call in this, in this story would be when we see a brother or sister in sin to imitate Jesus. The first thing that Jesus did is he called out the leaders for their sin. Jesus did not ignore sin in this story. I want you to notice that. He didn't ignore their sin and he did not ignore the woman's sin. Jesus called sin Sin. See, we're told in our culture that we're not allowed to call sin, sin anymore. That we're supposed to be so loving and so gracious that whatever you want to do with your life, you can go do it. Whatever, whatever suits you, whatever pleases you. If you think it's okay, then it's okay. That's simply not true. Jesus called sin what it was. He called out those men for their sin. He called the woman, called out her sin for her sin. He did not dismiss the sin. He addressed the sin. And that's incredibly important because if we're ever going to be right with God, if we're ever going to have any hope for our culture, we're going to have to take a stand and call sin what it is. Our culture may say that adultery is no longer sin. It's just an adult lifestyle. It's a preference. That's wrong. Scripture says adultery is sin. It is sin. Okay? If Scripture says that greed is sin, it is sin. If Scripture says that gossip against a brother or sister is sin, it is sin. When Scripture calls homosexuality sin, and we call it an alternative lifestyle, we are, dis- we, we are wrong. We're missing the point of God's word. When Scripture speaks to sin, we need to take a stand and call it what it is. Now, that doesn't mean that we do it in a crass way. I saw someone on, on Facebook yesterday that made a very crass post. What they said was true, but it was inappropriate the way that they approached it, and it was unhelpful for the kingdom of God. 
So we don't have to be crass. We don't have to be rude. Jesus was not crass. Jesus was not rude here, but Jesus called out those men's sin, and he called out the woman for her sin. Sin is sin when God says it's sin. If God says something's black, it's black. I don't care what word we make up for it. And so Jesus called out those leaders and the woman for their sin. But even in doing so, Jesus did it with compassion. Now certainly we recognize that when Jesus spoke to the woman and dealt with her concerning her sin, he did it with compassion. It's, it's clear in the text, and we'll deal with that a little bit more later. But I want you to understand Jesus also dealt with these religious leaders with compassion. See, Jesus knew their sin. He could have done to them what they did to that woman. And I'll be real honest with you, if I was in Jesus' position, I would have been tempted to. I would have been tempted to say, hey, Bob, you come over here and you stand in the middle for a minute. Let's talk about your sin. Hey, George, why don't you come over here for a minute, let everybody stand around, and we're going to talk about your sin. Because Jesus knew their sin. And Jesus could have hammered them. He could have come down hard on them. He called them out for their sin, but he did it even for those religious leaders. He did it with a measure of compassion. They were standing before a holy God who knew that they were lying, who knew that they were, they were up to debauchery, that they were trying to trap him. Jesus knew it. And he still treated them with compassion. Do you recognize that, that you can help someone? You can address someone's sin? You can call sin, sin, and you can still do it with compassion and love? Once again, one of the best ways to get there is to first recognize my sin. Recognize that I fall short before I start trying to deal with somebody else's. Jesus also refused condemnation. He could have condemned them. He could have, he could have struck them dead at that moment. He could have struck the woman dead for her sin. He could have had her stone. He could have written down the names of those who were caught in adultery or those others. He could have written down the name of the man. He could have had the man brought. He could have had him stoned to death. Jesus could have gone down fire from heaven and, and destroyed them. But God in his mercy, holy God standing there in the flesh, seeing the filth and the debauchery and the lie and the trap that those men had set up for him, used restraint and compassion and did not condemn them. He still offered an escape. He offered hope out of his love. He offered forgiveness for the woman, and he offered her a new beginning. That's what he does for us. Jesus offers us hope, forgiveness, and a new beginning. Even when we feel like we are condemned by the sins of our past, Jesus says, in me, there's no condemnation. I think one of the things that hamstrings many of us as Christians 
is the enemy who continues to whisper in our ear, see, because of what you did back there, you'll never be useful to God. Because of that mistake that you made, because of that sin, you'll, God will never be able to use you to accomplish his purposes. You'll never make, be, become anything in his kingdom. The apostle Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 7, going into Romans chapter 8. Paul, as he writes Romans later in life, after he had, he had suffered so much for the gospel, after he had planted so many churches, Paul writes those words that say, you know, I still struggle with sin. Sometimes I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. And you hear the despair and the distress, even in the apostle Paul. And I tend to think if Paul was in that kind of mess, how am I ever going to be any different? And yet the Apostle Paul writes these words, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Paul felt that sense of condemnation because of his own sin, because of his own flesh. And yet in Romans 7, 24 and 25, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because of the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. This is an important transition for us here because Paul felt condemned by his sin. He felt the weight of his past. He felt even the weight of of the battle that he had with the flesh present day as he was serving the Lord. And he would hear the whisper from the enemy in his ear saying, see, you're not any good. You're not worthy. And we all feel that. We all hear that at times. And yet Christ did not condemn those men nor that woman in that moment. There is no condemnation when we stand before Christ Jesus the Lord. We are set free from the law, from the spirit of death and the spirit of the law. You see, this is where it all fits together. And this is probably the most important part of the story for us today. We are that woman, every single one of us, you and I are that woman. You can say, oh, pastor, I've never been caught in in the act of adultery. Yes, you have. You've been caught, you you, you have stood before the eyes of a holy God, filthy and exposed in your sin. Every single one of us has. You may say, oh, well, no, nobody knew that I did that. Nobody knew about that sin, that sin of my heart or that sin of my mind. Nobody even knew about that, that thing that I did in darkness. Yes, they did. The one who matters saw. See, the truth is, even if you haven't committed physical adultery or Jesus didn't make it any easier on us when he said, you know, Scripture in the Old Testament says that those who commit adultery deserve death. But I'm telling you, if you even look at a woman as lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Scripture says, don't commit murder. But I'm here to tell you that if you have had hatred towards your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. 
every single one of us has been caught in the act of sin by a holy God. None of you, none of us escape his eyes. That thing that you thought you had covered up that nobody knows about, he does. God knows my sin. He knows all of it. He knows the filth of my heart, the unrighteousness of my mind. He knows what I've done in secret. He knows what I've thought in secret. I've been caught in the act. And I, I stand before a holy God, completely vulnerable and exposed. Because scripture says that in my sin before a holy God, uncondemned by the law, the law says I deserve death. The law says I deserve for my life to be ruined, to be destroyed, to be brought to an end. I think of criminals who are caught in the act knowing that they're about to spend the rest of their life in prison. What must that feel like to know that your life, as you know it, is ended? The truth is, because of my sin, if I were to to be drugged into the arena with all of the holy ones standing around, which really only include the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they were to examine my sin and compare it up against the laws of God, I'd be condemned. But even more so, take my sin and compare it to the righteousness of Christ, who is completely, absolutely holy even though he walked on this earth and faced the same temptations that I faced, he did so without sin. I'd stand embarrassingly condemned before a holy God, deserving of nothing other than annihilation, death. And so would you. Paul makes that clear earlier in Romans when he says the wages of sin is death. What we've earned, what we deserve, what the woman deserved, what she had earned, what those men deserved because of their sin, even though Jesus allowed them to quietly drop the rocks and walk away, he knew that their sin went even deeper than hers. Not only were they adulterers, were they sinners, not only were they evil but they had evil intent to destroy her life. And he allowed them to drop the rocks and walk. They didn't deserve that. They deserve to be called on the carpet for it. So do you and I. But that's not what Christ did. Jesus in that moment offered them an out. He offered forgiveness. 
Pay attention especially to what he offered to this woman because I believe she represents you and I in this story. Jesus stood up and he said to her in verse 10, woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus looks upon our sin and offers us forgiveness. He offers us an opportunity to escape what we deserve, to escape the punishment, to escape the destruction, to escape the death that we deserve because of our sin. He offers that to us as a gift. He didn't excuse her sin. His very next words are, you've got a new chance. You've got another opportunity. Go and sin no more. And Jesus doesn't outrightly excuse our sin, but he offers us an opportunity for forgiveness of our sin. Now, I don't know if that woman began a new life. I don't know if she took that opportunity at a fresh start and stepped away when she walked away from Jesus at that moment. I don't know if she believed him, if she trusted him, if she accepted that forgiveness, if she walked off and and experienced a new life away from sin, if she stepped out of her adulterous relationship. I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us the rest of the story about that woman. But I know that she had a choice, just like you and I have a choice. Now, there are some circumstances in our life that we're not going to get to choose. The coronavirus is still rampant. Some of you are still dealing with the grief of the loss of a loved one from last year. But you do have a choice in what you do with Jesus and the offer that he has laid on the table for you to have a new beginning, to have a new start. If if you have never believed that story, see, first, she has to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has the power to forgive You and I have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus has the power to forgive us of our sins. So first, you have to believe. You have to to decide, do I believe that he is who he says he is? Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do I believe that he is the Son of God? And then you have to be willing to accept his gift of forgiveness and cleansing as your own. And by accepting that gift, it means you also are willing to, and ready to turn away from your old way of life and walk away from that sin, just like she was. That's what he called her to do. Jesus offers us forgiveness, and he offers us a chance to start fresh and new. Some people are going to refuse the offer. And Scripture tells us that those who refuse his offer of forgiveness and eternal life will forever deal with the consequences of that choice. If you refuse to accept his gift of eternal life, you refuse to believe that he is who he says he is, and you walk away from Jesus to continue to live the way that you've always lived, to continue to do it your way, to continue to walk in your sin, you'll eventually stand before the judgment seat and Jesus won't condemn you, your choice will condemn you. You will have condemned yourself. John tells us that in John chapter three, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, 
The world condemns itself when it refuses to accept the Son of God. So if you, if you make a decision today in the hearing of this message to turn away and say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that Jesus can forgive me. I don't, I don't want a new start. I like living in this lifestyle. I like this sin. And you decide that you're going to continue to walk in that. You, you step out of that arena and you give up the opportunity for forgiveness and you give up the opportunity for cleansing from the blood of God's son and you're on your own. But if you're willing to accept what he says as truth and trust him, then God no longer looks at your sin, but he sees the blood of his son that has washed you clean from your sin. And you receive that gift of eternal life. And so if you have never accepted that as truth and put your faith and trust in Christ for for your forgiveness of sin, I plead with you, do it today. We are that woman. I have been caught in the act of sin by the eyes of a holy God. And I stand in the middle of those who are self-righteous and and I stand before the law and I stand in the middle of the, before the eyes of, of God himself condemned in my sin outside of the forgiveness that Christ offers. And so do you. If you have never accepted that gift of forgiveness and life and a chance at a new beginning, I plead with you, accept it today. You don't need me to do it for you. You don't need Kevin to do it for you. But if you have questions and you'd like to reach out to us what it means to begin to walk in that relationship with Christ, accepting that gift of forgiveness, following him faithfully, please reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you about it. But as I I preach this message and I examine my own heart, here we are at the beginning of a new year, I believe that this, this hope and this opportunity for a new start is not just for those who have never put their faith in Christ. Because I believe that there's some of us here that we know Jesus as our Savior. We've walked with him. We've walked with him closely in the past. But right now there's things in our life, sin, that we think we're hiding from him. There's sin that we've tucked away in our heart that maybe our, our spouse doesn't know about, or our friends don't know about, our parents don't know about. We think we've hidden it. Well, the truth is it's not hidden. It may be hidden from other people, but the eyes of God see your sin and my sin. And your spirit may be longing and yearning for a fresh start today. The good news with Jesus is, even if you've already messed up 2021, you've already had a bad January 1st and January 2nd, he offers you a fresh start today. He, he is standing before you, not condemning you for your sin, but offering you forgiveness. Saying, accept my forgiveness and go and sin no more. But it requires that you lay that sin down right there before the eyes of God and walk away from it. I believe that there's some of us here today that we've walked with Christ for a long time, but we've got stuff in our life that we need to leave right there in the middle.
that we need to walk away from and trust the new beginnings that Jesus is offering you today. Hey folks, this is Pastor Dennis Hester, and I want to thank you for joining First Baptist Watauga through our podcast and hearing the message today. My prayer is that you were encouraged and uplifted by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Our goal here is to equip you in your faith and to encourage you as you worship the Lord and seek to serve Him. If you have a question or you have a decision that you'd like to make, I'd encourage you to reach out to us through our website at fbcwatauga.org or simply call the church office. You can find that number or our email addresses there on that website as well. And by doing that, uh, we'd be glad to hear from you and we'd be encouraged about hearing what God's doing in your life. So God bless you and have a great day.